Welcome back to Meeting in Middle America, our podcast here at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Lubar Entrepreneurship Center. Today on the show, we speak with my friend Aaron Richards, who is a national education reporter for USA Today and previously reported on local K-12 education issues for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. So I speak with her about the big issues and trends facing education here in the Midwest and across the country. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to Meeting in Middle America. We're here at the Lubar Entrepreneurship Center at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. I'm joined by a good friend, a national education reporter for the USA Today, Aaron Richards. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, thanks Appreciate it. Me. Yeah, this is great. Well, we've gotten to know each other through a series of community dialogues here in Milwaukee and have always been a big fan of your reporting. You have such an interesting perspective having reported locally on education issues for the journal Sentinel, and now you've been looking at the national trends from the USA Today perspective. But let's talk about first your personal journey. How did you come here to Milwaukee and what got you interested in education issues? Well, I came here to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel as an intern in the summer of 2006. I'd gone to graduate school at the University of Missouri, Columbia for their journalism school. Came here as part of my master's project to do research and also reporting. Um, just was your typical general assignment reporter in the summertime covering you know, shootings and at the time the beaches here were awful. Um, you know, I covered all those things. Realized I really loved the city. I fell into education reporting because the education reporter at the time uh, named Sarah Carr had taken a, a fellowship, like a three-month fellowship to cover education in rural China. And so that was the end of uh, fall of 2007. And so I, I was a temp reporter after my internship and discovered I really liked education reporting. Opening came in 2000, uh, sorry, that was the end of 2006. Re opening came in 2007 to work full-time for the Journal Sentinel, worked in the suburbs, came back downtown in a couple of years to cover education full-time. Nice, that's yeah. exciting, that's exciting. So let's talk about Milwaukee in the context of the United States. And I'm curious from your standpoint, just when you look at the public school system, not only in the city, but also in the suburbs, where do you place this region's K through 12 public school system in the context of what you're seeing in terms of the larger national trends? Are we keeping up with trends? Are we doing things radically different? Are we mostly the same as what you're seeing nationally? How would you frame that? Well, like many things, especially in K-12 education, that's a, it's a, it's a, the answer has to be nuanced, right? Um, many large urban cities don't do particularly well with poor kids of color, uh, disadvantaged families. Milwaukee is no different. Um, however, Milwaukee, among large urban school systems, Milwaukee is also lower performing than other large urban systems around the country. It's, it's closer to the bottom um, in terms of math and reading scores. Wisconsin as a whole is a high-performing state, in part because so much of our state is um, predominantly white middle class. White middle class kids tend to perform better than um, uh, kids of color and, and disadvantaged youth. So some of that is balanced out. And over the years, like many states, Wisconsin has to, had to kind of parse out, okay, where are we, you know, where are things going well? Where do we need, where can we do better? You know, graduation rates in Wisconsin have always been quite high among some of the highest in the country. But um, what does it mean that we can have high graduation rates as a state, but we still have some of the lowest reading scores in the country for African-American children? Mm. Like, how can those two things be true at the same time? Mm. Um, so that is a, a particular Wisconsin challenge. In other states and other cities, those same paradoxes can happen, right? New York City, you have 
incredibly high achieving families, many of those kids are from wealthy families in the public schools. You also have really low scores among disadvantaged youth. So in every city, including Milwaukee uh, and Wisconsin, those paradoxes are occurring in the public schools. I would say that in general, Milwaukee has not made as much progress to address those challenges as other cities. There is uh, more energy in other places. There is less resistance to trying new and different things. Um, Milwaukee has had a longstanding school choice program, which happened so long ago that um, a lot of the kind of reform energy around schools in the city, and now a little bit statewide too, now that we have um, private schools that can accept public money <clears throat> outstate, um, that has long been seen as a reform strategy here. The test scores don't bear out that it's doing amazingly better for kids. And so you see some of these same school choice arguments being made around the country as well. And yet, like, it's not, it's not the silver bullet that everybody wants. So the, I balance kind of what I've learned here, covering school choice, you know, covering these kind of battles between the urban and the, and the rural forces. And they're playing out everywhere, but I would say that Milwaukee's been a little slow to act um, aggressively on tack tackling some of these same issues. Yeah, absolutely, and, and I'm curious when you drill down into what some of those reasons for inaction might be, or not as much action as there should be, is it because of the complex politics? Is it because of what we hear a lot about in terms of the racial segregation between the urban areas and the suburban and rural areas? Is it the, or something else? Yeah, how, what sort of forces are, are at play there? Sure. Um, I think some of it is that we have some very entrenched and long-serving, um, not just political institutions here, but political figures that have been in the role for a long time. Um, and just like everywhere in the country, there's a, there's a lot of clashing right now and not a whole lot of people working across the aisle. And this is why I so appreciate what you guys are doing because yeah. it's really trying to break down those walls and try to find these places where we can actually compromise. Um, so you have um, you know, a legislature that's flipped a couple of times. We, we've had some really polarizing politics here dating back. Um, I mean, certainly the, the battle over public schools under Scott Walker and the Act 10 reforms. Um, you've got you know, split government now with now you've got a Democratic governor and a Republican state house. And you know, there isn't a lot of interest in compromising and trying to advance some policies that would be, um, you know, that might progress uh, more of the education initi initiatives that are being tried in other states. Right. Um, I do think, and this is very much a personal observation, and I can't support this with data, we are a state where a lot of people stick around here for a long time because it's a good place to live and learn and, and uh, live comfortably and um, raise a family. Right. And to some extent, I think that's part of the magic of Wisconsin and Milwaukee. I also think that sometimes it's not a great service to us because you don't have enough outside voices kind of coming in and saying, look, this could be really different. Or forward thinking people go and look at what's happening in other places that could work in education or in another sphere of the city. And it just doesn't get that traction to go forward because you need the money here for a new thing to happen. You need the 50 most powerful people in Milwaukee to be on board with it. And you need the political will and you need the business community behind you. And we're a small enough big city that you kind of need all of that, all of those ingredients before you can really advance something that's gonna, that's gonna move the needle. Right, right. And we were just talking a few minutes ago about a major policy change that happened in Wisconsin related to dealing with the 
racial segregation, and that's the ending of the Chapter 220 program, the busing program, um, both ways from the city to the suburbs and the suburbs to the city. So say a little bit more about what happened in terms of the decision to end that program, but then also are you seeing a similar trend nationwide where they're starting to end these busing programs? Sure. So this goes back a little bit to your question before where you talked about racial segregation. Certainly a huge issue in Milwaukee. We're one of the most segregated cities in the country. Um, And what happened under the Chapter 220 program was that that was was an an, an intentional integration program that allowed uh, kids of color from the city to attend suburban schools and kids in the suburbs to attend schools in the city with free transportation both ways. So that was a, a basically a, a voluntary agreement, but under the auspices of a legal agreement that really emerged from a lawsuit, um, you know, decades ago that basically said, um, you know, that school integration wasn't happening because the, the schools weren't letting integration happen, right? So this was kind of like, uh, as part of a court order, these districts voluntarily agreed to figure out their own integration plan. And so this was what the plan was. And it actually worked quite well um, on the basis of test scores and outcomes for students who participated, particularly because we know that low-income kids of color are lowest, generally the lowest performing um, demographic group that we have in schools. Kids that took part in that program and went to higher performing suburban schools did quite well in comparison to their peers that didn't leave the city. The problem with that program, not problem, but at the same time, Wisconsin has another program called Open Enrollment that allows anybody, regardless of race, um, to attend a school outside of your district as long as you apply through the appropriate channel and there's space for you in that other district. So the argument under, under Governor Scott Walker's tenure was that so many more kids were choosing Open Enrollment that Chapter 220 was kind of irrelevant, that it, it wasn't necessary anymore because you could use a parent could use um, Open Enrollment and accomplish the same outcome to get my kid in another district. For many of us who pay very close attention to education issues, the key in the Chapter 220 program was that free transportation both ways. If you're a low-income person, it is likelier that you don't have access to transportation um, than than a middle-class person. So when you cut off that program, and now, because the program has been ended, the only kids that are still Chapter 220 kids are the ones who are still in the school system, and they will age out within a number of years. Um, so what, what I always thought was interesting about covering that program is that it was one of the few things that we saw work. And it worked because there's lots of research behind why integration works for kids and produces yeah. higher, out, better outcomes. Uh, but we cut off that channel here. And um, I don't think we'll know the full scale of the result of that until more years down the road. Frankly, it'll take so many years that it'll be politically impossible to bring the program back. Right. Um, At the same time, other states are dealing with the same. This is not just a Milwaukee thing. School integration is difficult. I just wrote about schools in New York where, you know, gifted and talented tracks in New York City schools are sort of the way that schools tend to, sorry, they tend to segregate, right? Like families of means tend to be able to prep their kids to do well on tests that then get them into a gifted and talented track. And now you have lower income or kids of color in a, a track that's just kind of regular, right? So this ways of kind of splitting up kids happens everywhere. Yeah. It's just how do we address it and who is, who's pushing the needle on how to address those Yeah, issues. absolutely. Now as you look at the national landscape, what are, 
are some of the most exciting trends you're seeing? What makes you hopeful about the future of education in America? So I have to say, I've been moved recently by covering youth activists, um, teen, teenagers. This, this emerged partly out of my reporting in New York City. Um, most of us know teen activists on the, on the you know, climate change front because that's been such a part of the news and uh, with the Greta Thunberg movement and you know, striking for climate on, on Fridays after school or during school. <clears throat> but one thing that really gives me hope is that there's a lot of young people coming up, 18, 19, 20, who really care about, about things like school integration and equi equitable access f for all kids to obtain a great education. And um, sometimes I hear that, f I often hear that from adults, but there's so many more things in the way of adults moving the needle sometimes that this sort of like pure commitment to a cause from young people gives me a lot of hope because I didn't see that when I was in high school. I don't, I don't think I had friends who were quite as woke to like equitable opportunities for everybody. Yeah, yeah. And so that actually gives me hope for the future that there are young people coming up who understand that they may have benefited from things like gifted and talented and other, you know, they, they know that they were in the right place at the right time or they had the right mentor at the right time or that they had a strong family background that helped them succeed but they also don't want that to be limited to, to just them. They want right. other students to have that opportunity also. Right. So that gives me hope. Um, I'm also hopeful, just in terms of instruction and approach to schooling, um, there's a lot of interesting initiatives happening around the country, especially when it comes to collaborations between universities and high schools. Nice. Um, like I just wrote a story about how math instruction in America can be really dreary for a lot of kids because it's often taught in kind of this rote procedural manner. Um, that's not the way other countries approach it. There's a lot more integration with math. And so some universities in California are partnering with high schools to develop these math courses that are just far more engaging and it makes you um, use mathematics to problem solve. And um, you know, that's the more that we can engage students in school, the more you're gonna have kids want to come to school, stick around, like graduate on time, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that we can do beyond, um, you know, structures to get to like the heart of education, which is trying to teach young people to love to learn and to be curious and to be critical thinkers, which is gonna serve them well no matter what they do after school. And right. it's also gonna help community and society at large yeah. with more people that That's right. have those skills. And do you have any hope that teachers will start to get paid more over the next 10 years? You hear some presidential candidates talking about that? Totally. Yeah, I mean, I think that this, I've covered education long enough to see this wave of, you know, teachers are the best thing, and then like, teachers are overpaid, and their benefits are too much, and now it's kind of swinging back to, shoot, there's not very many people choosing to go, there's not as many people choosing to go into teaching and education as there used to be. And that's partly because the economy is doing a lot better than it was a few years ago. Smart people have other options besides teaching. Some of the benefits have been pared down, so if you were gonna attach yourself to a district for the long term and you know, sort of reap your benefits farther down the road, some of those have been slimmed down. And um, you know, education is not, I'm not hearing as many people be excited about it. I'm hearing more teachers that are in the profession go, whew, sure feels like I am working hard and not getting a whole lot of appreciation for it. Yeah. So I think this movement of teachers really saying, we need to be paid more. And you're seeing conservative states like Florida say, yep, we need to raise the minimum for teachers. This isn't enough pay for what we're expecting these people to do. That's right. So I'm actually somewhat optimistic that there will be some movement. Um, 
somewhat independent of who gets chosen as president. Um, but I do think that the, the political winds have shifted a little bit from bashing teachers to actually realizing that in the public sphere, we do need to make sure that there's adequate compensation here, and especially in places where the housing costs have risen so much. You're not going to be able to retain young, talented teachers in a city where housing is really expensive if, if the floor for your base salary is so low. Yeah. So I actually think there's quite a bit of movement that's going yeah. to come there. That's exciting. Well, this has been a really fun conversation, but of course we're just scratching the surface. Mm -hmm. If people want to continue following your work on uh, education and the trends and personalities and policies of uh, at the education system nationally, how can they learn more about your work? Sure. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at E.M. Richards. Um, we ha USA Today has an education section, so if you download the USA Today app, it's still free. You can click on the education section there, and all of our stories um, on schools are, are all located in that, in that portal. Awesome. Aaron, thank you so much for good joining us. Really, good to see you, too. Thank you. Sure. Thanks, everyone.